0: From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. Today's show is What We Wore, true stories of power, promises, and polyester, with true sartorial stories from Margarita Meyendorf, Stephen Lewis, and Tracy Doolittle-McNally.
1: There's a Halloween costume party tonight up in Palinville, Lynn said on the phone. I think we should go. Rumor has it that the all-male band is performing naked.
2: Entering the cool, dark Elliott store in Manhattan, my mother placed her hand on my scrawny neck and ushered me to the back. We were going to buy a suit for my bar mitzvah.
3: It had been two years since I graduated college, and checking out my outfit, she asked, is that a schmilt? (laughs) No, I said laughing, it's a kilt, and I have at least ten.
0: And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Rhonda Zangwill describes an unconventional tag team approach to writing a novel with a friend
4: conventional wisdom holds that writing is a solitary, lock yourself in the garret obsession between you and the muse. Or
0: is it? That's all just ahead on Read 650. Opening a trunk to see a summer camp uniform or bar mitzvah suit or bridesmaids dress can transport us to another time and place. What do the things we wear say about who we are or where we're going. For today's show, we've stitched together just three stories from the trunk load we presented for a live audience one snowy Sunday in March at our What We Wore event at SUNY Ulster in Stone Ridge, New York. We begin with Margarita Mayendorf, better known as Morca to her friends. In this story, Morca recalls an especially memorable Halloween with her story of an inspired bit of last-minute improvisation. Here's Morka at SUNY Ulster in Stone Ridge, New York, reading The Happening.
1: There's a Halloween costume party tonight up in Palinville, Lynn said on the phone. I think we should go. It's supposed to be a happening. Rumor has it that the all-male band is performing naked. What are we wearing, do you have a costume? I don't have a costume, I said. No worries, I'll meet you at your house in an hour. Find something to put on, she said. It'll be fun. And the phone clicked. Leave it to Lynn, my good friend, the modern dancer and choreographer extraordinaire, to dig up this party in Palinville, a tiny village in upstate New York, in the middle of nowhere. My children were with my ex-husband. I had the night off. Why not? As I stood loading dirty clothes into the washing machine, I glanced up at the wall of my laundry room at the single decoration, a bright red communist flag with the yellow hammer and sickle insignia in the center. A few years back, I had bought the flag in Moscow and displayed it over the washing machine to depict my daily proletariat tasks. (laughs) My inner voice whispered, wear it. Could I go wrapped in a communist flag? (laughs) After all, Gorbachev's perestroika was in full effect in Russia. I dumped the dirty clothes into the washer, took down the flag, ran upstairs and stripped. I wrapped the flag around me twice. Mm -hmm. The mini flag dress fit perfectly from just above my breasts to just above my knees. The hammer and sickle making a perfect design in the middle of my body. I pulled up my hair for formal flair, donned red high heels, and pinned several Russian military medals to my chest. (laughs) If the band was appearing naked, I could be a Russian general wearing a flag. With safety pins holding me and the flag together, I could hardly walk, much less sit or dance for fear of unraveling. The door opened and I gasped as Lynn walked in dressed as the ghost of Martha Graham. Uh Holding a large candelabra in her black gloved hands, her face was white with powder, eyes outlined in heavy black no lipstick. She was wearing a long, tight black dress with a turtleneck collar and her hair was pulled back tight in a bun with chopsticks protruding. Lynn bore an uncanny resemblance to Martha anyway, but in this outfit, she embodied her. Lynn was dressed to the gills. I was half naked. Very careful not to disturb the safety pins and chopsticks, we climbed into the car and headed for the party. We were famished because in the excitement we had forgotten to eat. The only recourse was to stop at the drive-through Burger King window at the thruway entrance. We managed to eat a few whoppers without too much movement and continued on our way. The party was packed with people who were on various levels of alcohol and marijuana highs. Everyone was in a tizzy awaiting the advertised naked musicians. When four nice-looking musicians finally did appear, yes, naked with glow paint on their members, the crowd roared in appreciation. From my perspective, they were a partial disappointment as they quickly hid behind their instruments. The guitar and cello players more successfully than the saxophonist. (laughs) The rest of the evening, Lynn floated through the crowd with the lit candelabra, and I fussed with my communist flag mini-dress as the heavy Soviet medals were threatening to open and expose my breasts. The next day, the Kingston freeman ran an article on the front page. Nudity and commies in (laughs) Palinville. and named names, a few prominent Woodstock citizens who attended. Had I known there was a right-wing reporter at the gathering, I would have let my flag slip and really give them something to write about. At least my left-wing breast would have been exposed.
0: (laughs) Margarita Mayendorf was born displaced in a refugee camp in Germany and is the author of the published memoir, DP, Displaced Person. She has performed as an actress, dancer, musician, and storyteller at venues throughout the United States and in Europe. Margarita has recently published an anthology of short stories based on her life's adventures. The book is called Flipping the Bird. Being fitted for a suit can make a little boy feel even smaller, as Stephen Lewis can attest. Here's Steve, recorded at Reed 650's What We Wore About Reading the New Suit.
2: Entering the cool, dark Elliott store in Manhasset, my mother placed her hand on my scrawny neck and ushered me to the back. We were going to buy a suit for my bar mitzvah my first suit. She pointed toward the large boys rack and my heart sank. They all looked like something my father would wear to work. I shrugged. Try one on just for size, she said. A salesman hurried over, baggy pants flopping over his brown shoes. Just for size, he echoed. You don't have to get it. I was old enough to know what they were doing, but too young to stop it. I pointed to the one without stripes. My mother said it was charcoal gray. The salesman held out the jacket like a matador holds a cape. I contorted myself in. He jerked down the back, walked around front, and tugged at the lapels. Then the sleeves, then buttoned all three buttons. Perfect, he exclaimed before handing me the slacks and pointing toward the changing room. The slacks were two feet too long, baggier than pajamas, and the crotch was located somewhere near my knees. I padded out of the dressing room with a wad of gray material bunched around my white socks, a silly grin on my face waiting for the howls of laughter. Good spat the short, balding tailor who had appeared, pins between his shadowy lips. He also wore baggy pants. His sleeves were rolled, tie loosened. I turned to my mother with a smirk. She looked away. She was not going to protect me. He said, get up there, pointing to the carpeted riser. The man put his stubby fingers through the belt loops near my hips and hiked the pants up just below my nipples. (laughs) That's not where a man wears his pants, sonny. On your waist, but I don't. You'll wear them there, he said. (laughs) I turned again to my mother. Eyebrows knitted, lips pursed, she gave me that or else look. Next, he pulled out a yellow tape measure, stuck one end up just beneath my crotch, and slid the other hand down along the tape to my ankle. Shrinking into myself, I giggled and bent over. Straighten up, Sonny. I straightened up. These aren't dunkarees, Sonny. You want to be a man, you dress like a man. At my bar mitzvah a month later, I looked like I had gone into my parents' closet and put on one of my father's suits big padded shoulders, oversized pants up to my chest, enormous cuffs that fell like living room drapes around my shiny black shoes. In the 58 years that followed that undefining day, while high school, college, marriage, and the births of seven children and 16 grandchildren sped by like telephone poles on a speeding train, I have never once felt old enough to fit into a suit. I have gotten by as a writer and a teacher with the typical Levi's and colored T-shirt look. Put me in front of a class, behind a rototiller, underneath a sleeping baby, on top of a leaking roof, and I feel like a man. Let me read you a poem, plunge your toilet, rock you to sleep, yell at you for being out past curfew, hold you close, be your lover. I have known enough of life and death, ecstasy and despair, the suffocating heat of love, the bone-knocking chill of loneliness to know my place as a man in the world. Put me in a suit, though. Just for size. And I still shrink like all men do in freezing streams, a little boy, all alone, out in the big, cold world.
0: Stephen Lewis is a former mentor at SUNY Empire State College, longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty, and a longtime freelancer. He's the author of several fiction and non-fiction books, and his work has been published widely, including in the New York Times, Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere. Steve is a contributing writer at Talking Writing Magazine, and he's senior editor and literary ombudsman for Read650. His new novel, The Lights Around the Shore, is published by Moonshine Co. Tracy Doolittle McNally's new colleague at the law firm was fascinated by her sense of style, and she didn't hesitate to say exactly what was on her mind. Tracy memorializes her colleague, Camille, in this piece she's entitled, Desperately Seeking Fashion.
3: Oh my God, oh my God, you are the cutest thing I've ever seen, said Camille, the new clerk at the desk directly outside my office at Scanarps, Arps, the law firm where I worked as a paralegal in the early 1980s. It had been two years since I graduated college and checking out my outfit she asked, is that a schmilt? <laughs> no, I said laughing, it's a kilt and I have at least 10. I then had to explain that my mother was Scottish and the treasure of the Westchester Scottish Country Dance Society, the reason I had so many kilts. That day at the office, I wore a black watch kilt, navy blue blazer, loafers, and a white Brooks Brothers Peter Pan blouse trimmed in navy piping and monogrammed Tad across the left cuff. Oh my god, I don't know that designer. said Camille, pointing to my left cuff. It's not a logo, Camille. It's my initials, and it stands for Tracy Ann Doolittle. I felt like the Highland Village idiot. Oh my god, oh my god. That is the cutest name I've ever heard. Do you want to do lunch? And is that your real nose? And so our relationship began, which was more than an acquaintance and not quite a friendship, and included trips to the lunch counter at Bloomingdale's for grilled cheese and tomato sandwiches, followed by visits to Bloomingdale's to broaden my wardrobe horizon. Camille, with her blue eyes, wavy blonde hair, and svelte figure worked previously in sales at Fiorucci, the Italian fashion store known as the Daytime Studio 54, which in the early 80s attracted trendsetters from Andy Warhol to Cher to Lauren Bacall. Because Camille was kind, she didn't mind being seen in public with me in my humdrum workaday attire, as she mixed camouflage, leopard, denim, hot pink, neon, and gold bling like no other. Once Camille asked me why I never accessorized and wore jewelry. I told her, my people don't do jewelry. It stays in the safe deposit box where it belongs. (laughs) Camille loved her work at Fiorucci, but her father, a well-respected litigator in Suffolk County, wanted her to get a more serious job, so she ended up at Skadden Arps. I was astonished the day I overheard Camille speaking on the phone to her mother, Nina. Gone was all trace of Long Island, and in its place was the most exquisite French, spoken like a native. It turned out Nina was born and raised in France, and Camille had spent many long summers there, honing a knowledge of French, food, and fashion. Camille also followed music. She was a regular at the downtown clubs and was often listening on her Sony Walkman to demo tapes of singers trying to break through, which I assume she got from her Fiorucci connections. Because Camille knew I was a dancer, she gave me a demo tape with a chorus of, Everybody come on and dance and sing, everybody get up and do your thing. I liked the song so much I was dancing to it in the hallway at Scan Arps oh, my God, oh, my God, you are such a good dancer. (laughs) Do you want to go to Danceteria this Sunday and hear this woman? She's singing in public for the first time. Not really, I said. I mean, she's really good and all, but I don't like crowds. So off Camille went with nerdy Mike from the mailroom in his short-sleeved shirt and pocket saver. Monday morning, Camille bursts into my office and said, Oh my God, oh my God, you missed it. She dresses just like me. And her name is even cuter than yours. Madonna. I think she's going to make it.
0: Tracy Doolittle McNally is the former Executive Director of Historic Huguenot Street in New Paltz, past President of the Greene County Chamber of Commerce in Catskill, and past Vice President of the United Way for Ulster County. Prior to her career in the nonprofit world, Tracy worked in corporate advertising as a copywriter, and she's currently pursuing her lifelong passions of genealogy, classical ballet and storytelling. She and her husband live in the Hudson Valley. Read 650's executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team consists of Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa donati Mayer. Fran Tuno is our announcer, and our show was produced with generous assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. If you've written a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. And if you haven't, now is a great time to do so. It really helps us, and it helps other people find the show. We'll be back with Rhonda Zangwill and Between the Lines after this short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.
4: Support for Read 650 comes from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College. Enroll in a non-credit workshop where everyone, from the novice to seasoned writers, from preteens to retirees, can find a class to explore their talents and bring their inner writer to life. The Writing Institute helps writers in every genre to grow, welcoming them into a supportive community of better thinkers, better listeners, and better writers. Learn more. Visit sarahlawrence.edu slash writing institute.
0: This week on Between the Lines, Rhonda Zangwill tells the story of how she and a friend navigated writing a novel together. She says it was energizing, inspiring, and fun, as well as frustrating and sometimes even enraging. Luckily, she and her friend Janine Babakian ultimately ended up on the same page, and if anything, she says, they're even better friends now than they were before. Here's Rhonda Zangwill reading... Words with Friends.
4: Conventional wisdom holds that writing is a solitary, lock-yourself-in-the-garret obsession between you and the muse. Or is it? Not long ago, my friend Janine and I decided to write a novel together. Why not? We already considered each other inordinately clever. We already shared countless passions. Jane Austen and Broadway musicals, ab-crunching and kickboxing, A deep belief in the power of snacking. Also, we are both writers, earning our daily bread, churning out mostly dull, albeit socially useful stuff for other people. So why not do it for ourselves? Unleash our long-throttled creativity. As an added bonus, our book would be based on real events. The sojourn we took through Uzbekistan and Siberia in the mid-1990s. This was a geopolitical moment that was uncharted and frustrating, but also exhilarating and full of possibilities, sort of like our own lives at that time. I had plenty of source material, photos, yellowing faxes, telegrams, dot matrix email printouts, even the carbon of my airline ticket. Journal entries revealed a combination of my own whining. I'm so hot. These flies are disgusting. Oh my God, are we having more greasy mutton for dinner? With more prosaic daily observations about, oh, the beautiful exotic spices in the markets, Lake Baikal's gorgeous tranquility, the purifying banya. What became clear as we resurrected shared experiences, traversing a desert, scaling a mountain, enduring Aeroflot, is that we had very different memories on nearly everything, despite being together more or less 24-7. But this did not stymie us, just the opposite. This gave us our strategy. We would write an epistolary novel with two narrative voices. Each would write to her own BFF, detailing everything from camels to capitalism to complaints about the other narrator's annoying personality traits. This would give our book structure and hopefully a bit of humor through a she said, she said dynamic that would illuminate our two main characters while moving the plot ever forward. And so we burned up the internet with long emails and even longer attachments filled with plot twists and ancillary characters. We used Google Docs to discuss and dissect every word in real time. Was there contention? Of course. As writers, Janine and I are as different as our two invented heroines. But like them, we were in this together and like them, dealt with each other's sometimes maddening habits and quirks with a combination of underlying respect and, let's be honest here, frequent snacks. There is nothing like chocolate to ease creative tension. And the novel? Well, with any luck, are you listening, dear prospective agent? We hope that it might be coming soon to a bookshelf near
0: you. Ronda Zhangwill Will has published her stories in literary journals and has variously served as a teaching artist for Teachers and Writers Collaborative a writing mentor for Girls right Now, that's right with the W. the Penn Prison Program, and as a story coach for the MON. Currently, Rhonda serves as a workshop leader for the New York Writers' Coalition, and she lives in New York City. Between the Lines is where writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. Please tell your writer friends about it, and you'll find details under the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Margarita Meyendorf, Stephen Lewis, Tracy Doolittle-McNally, and Rhonda Zangwill, whom I'm very pleased to welcome as the newest member of our Read 650 advisory team. For more Read 650, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, Thanks so much for listening today and for spreading the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.